there's a lot of smart people working on this and it's going to take an entire industry. Uh, but don't forget about the controllables. Um, giving the guilds a good place to live, fresh feet, clean water, good environment, um, doesn't take anything too fancy and make sure we just take care of her the best we can. Uh, watch the feed budgets, um, watch the, the barn, watch the stocking density. We know the things that have an impact. We can control those. Um, let's don't forget about them. Swine. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman Animal Nutrition. Visit EASTMAN.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. This episode's sponsored highlight is about MS shippers. Want to save up to 25% in labor time when cleaning your barns? With MS Top Foam Power, you effectively remove all historical pollution. MS Top Foam Power ensures the surface is perfectly clean and ready for disinfection. Find your dealer at www.msgold.eu. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Kyle Koble, who's the Director of Nutrition Services for JBS. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Laura. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you on today, Kyle. Uh, before we talk about our subject tonight, I would really like for you to take a moment and talk a little bit more about yourself and your background, because some of our audience members may not be as familiar with you as, as others. Sure. Well, it's a privilege to be on. Um, I've had an, an exciting career, um, you know, this uh, soon into it. I grew up in South Central Kansas, uh, just south of Wichita, um, the grandson of a veterinarian who started one of the first feedlots in Kansas and uh, was really raised uh, more with a, a cattle background. But I always had a passion for pigs and uh, got into the show pig world, which uh, many of, of us in the swine industry, it's been a little bit of the gateway drug uh, into this industry, got into uh, 4-H and FFA and ultimately went to undergrad at Oklahoma State where uh, I was a student worker at the swine farm and, and had some uh, management responsibilities there uh, under Kim Brock, who is uh, one of the biggest mentors in my life. I uh, felt like um, I didn't know enough to be of any value to anyone and, so, um, and was really interested on uh, the nutrition side. Uh, Dr. Scott Carter there was doing uh, a lot of things on the nutrient excretion side. That farm was only about three or four years old. And so it was really humming with a lot of excitement on on, on campus. Stayed there for uh, a master's, did some work in nutrient excretion, specifically looking at gas emissions um, in nutrient excretion with uh, ractopamine and worked with uh, Dr. Keith Hayden uh, and Megan Pearden during their tenureship at, at Alanco. And um, also worked on a, a few antibiotic alternative trials uh, that Megan Bible, who's um, with uh, Hamlet Protein, uh, did. 
again, I felt like I was of no value to anyone at the end of that yet and um, was fortunate enough to go on to Kansas State University for uh, a PhD. And, and I studied uh, under that crew there um, and under the advisement of Joel DeRushi, uh, Mike Tokesh, and Steve Dreets. When I was there, uh, really focused on finishing production, uh, specifically high fiber ingredients and byproduct ingredients, and then also feeding copper. Did a lot of work with James Ussery um, on tribasic copper chloride and really trying to understand some of the, the uh, intricacies and the mode of action. I made the mistake early in my tenureship of my PhD, though. I told Dr. Derushi that uh, I was bored. And he quickly found me a job with Chad Hasted at New Fashion Pork and was fortunate to run the research there uh, for pretty much my entirety of my PhD program at, at K-State. I was responsible for the, the research program there at New Fashion Pork, helped build a couple of barns, and that led into a full-time job. Uh, moved from Manhattan to uh, near Jackson, Minnesota. My responsibilities there was uh, to continue on the, the research front. Um, and we were, in that time, we were doing anywhere between 30 and 40 trials a year of various things. But also uh, got the unique responsibility to, in addition to some nutrition, really work on pig flow and marketing. And I developed a passion for that. Uh, I was really interested in that and understanding how to run that operation. I think pig flow is one of the hardest jobs in production. And, and Dr. Frecking uh, was very, very giving with his time and um, what I call uh, industrial or industry tuition. Um, you know, he, he allowed some tuition costs there for me to learn. I also had the opportunity to start up a GAP certified production system that they call new, uh, Old Fashioned Pork. And uh, it's a 1,400 head sow operation there in um South Central Wisconsin, and was fortunate enough to lead that effort. Um, got the call from Dr. Turner that uh, JVS had purchased Cargill um, in um, middle or middle to early of 2017, and uh, it was a unique opportunity. And uh, I was a little bit hesitant. You know, it's a quite a bit bigger system, and wasn't quite sure um, it was a good fit. Uh, and after about eight or nine months of milling it over, uh, I ultimately made the leap to to start the nutritional services division of, of JBS Live Pork and have been here since uh, 2018. So it's five years here this past Sunday. So it's where I'm at today. Um, you know, I lead the nutrition team here. I also lead the feed milling team and, uh, and the research team. So uh, that's my background, Laura. Yeah, you have quite a full background and a, a busy job as it as it is in the moment, for sure. Um, well, Kyle, we were visiting a little bit beforehand, and one of the topics that I think would be really good to visit on today is about soil longevity and some of the things that you're exploring and considering um, there at JBS or maybe outside of JBS on on things that we can do to improve soil livability, and so. I think we'll just kind of start with this, just let you generally talk a little bit about what are you doing and, and what are your thoughts? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about maybe some of the research that you've done more recently. Yeah. You, you know, I think the the sow mortality and sow longevity discussion um, continues to be at the forefront of what we talk about nearly every day in our system. And, and I know that um, we're no different than others. 
you know, the cost of a sow and a gilt is very, very expensive and the cost of maintaining her is expensive. Um, and it's, it's a challenge. And I would say as an industry, we, we, we have a problem. Um, but there's so many smart people working on it, um, that, um, this is a very complex multifaceted issue. That's certainly not going to be fixed with one silver bullet. A lot of what we've been working on, um, at least within the JBS system is really kind of two tiered. Um, you know, like a lot of production systems, we don't have a ton of intensely managed research space on the south side. So it's very, very hard to really get nitty gritty with a, a really cute uh, nutritional intervention or uh, plan on the south side because it just takes so much to manage it. And then the numbers to get any sort of repeatability to, of scale really inhibits a lot of those challenges. But... um what we've tried to do is take an idea and create a pilot uh, that was at least uh, big enough in size that um, we wouldn't run down a dark path, but yet small enough in scope that um, we could handle it and it wasn't a huge burden. And we've done that with um, on, on the first project in this area is partnering with the University of Arkansas with uh, Dr. Charlie Maxwell um, and, T- and Dr. T.C., and working with PIC and DSM. And the first question we wanted to answer was, can we nutritionally manipulate the growth of gilts and have an impact on longevity? I firmly believe that the gilt is where this starts. And so many gilts across every business and system um, get stuck in a finisher at 15 pounds and, and you know, we turn the timer on and and let them let them grow, uh, and then try to pull them out as close to you know three hundred or three hundred and ten pounds as possible to put them in a sow farm. So, what we did was say, hey, you know, um, we had been finding a lot of OCD in these older gilts, and this the lameness um, was really a big discussion point. So. OCD is typically uh, an impact of really fast-growing animals. So that's what led us down this path of saying, well, let's maybe try to manipulate the gilt growth. So we put um, 160 gilts on feed from 50 pounds forward and uh, followed them through their entire gilt production and sow production through four parodies. And just now wrapping that up, and interesting enough, um, the gilts ate a lot more than we thought they would. Um, we tried to reduce growth um, close to 10%, um, and it was a challenge to do that, to get the lysine level low enough to where we thought we could get um, the growth suppressed uh, in late finishing, and then also get the amino acids to still balance out when you don't have any added lysine uh, in some of those diets. And, and especially with the high level of byproducts. And then what was interesting second from that is um, the compensatory growth that they had during gestation was really interesting. Um, that when it became time to come into the farrowing house, at least on that first initial group, there wasn't a huge difference in weight. Um, they had compensated. But essentially, we were turning off the treatments at at uh, the time they come into the sow farm to be flushed as a female and be bred. 
So it wasn't um, to- a total surprise, but th- how quickly they compensated was very interesting. So we fast forward through through all these parodies, and what we found was um, sows that had been on the lower energy rations um, had somewhere between a 15 and a 20% improvement in retention uh, over that number of parodies. The other thing that was really interesting was the uh, gilts and sows who had fed, been fed the lower energy rations had a higher lactation intake. Um, you know, whether it's gastric distension, which there's a group that doesn't believe in that, and there's a group that maybe thinks that it is, and I'm, I'm not sure where I find myself. Um, but, you know, does that come into play? Um, but we did have a higher intake uh, and a little bit of improvement in, in uh, total bore. So fully understanding that, you know, 160 uh, females through those number of parodies is, is not as large of a study as we would like. Uh, we further went on and started 3,300 gilts on the same treatments. Um, and those gilts are just now getting bred in Dalhart, Texas, um, as a part of this second larger project. So, you know, as with any of these longevity slash guilt trials, um, it just takes a lot of time. And I think the industry is somewhat running out of patience. I know our production system is for, for some sort of breathing room or some sort of answer that just at least stops the bleeding, uh, no pun intended. Um, and these things just take time. So those are kind of the two main projects that we've worked on. We've certainly went ahead and put some of this in the field, uh, and implemented it. You know, the OCD was getting so bad in some of these that, um, you know, the number of females that we could keep going into the farm was being severely impacted. It was definitely a time for me to bond with the veterinarian, um, with Dr. Darren Madsen, him and I, and. And actually, John Bergstrom at DSM, we spent an entire day in the field and just cut open pigs. And um, this was something I felt like I could help with. Um, you know, it's hard to regulate intake and growth on ad libitum feeders. Um, but I felt like this was something that, you know, nutrition and the health sciences kind of came together. And so when we put this in in the field, the, you know, I am happy to report that the, the OCD incidences have uh, very much diminished. So that's kind of the main focus that we've been working on at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's really good. And I have a question there. But before we do, I'm going to just stop for a moment and communicate to the audience. If you're not familiar with what Kyle is saying for OCD, that's osteochondrosis. So it's um, degradation of the bone at the joint level. And so we will, if we open up a joint, we'll see a lesion. And we believe that is, of course, just destruction from inflammation and and um, cytokines from from you know just rapid growth. So, just for some people that may not be familiar with that term, that's what he's referring to. But Kyle, I want to back up a moment because you you talked about you were reducing energy. So by reducing energy, we naturally reduce the lysine that's also going in that feed. But then you made a comment about by the time they went to farrowing, they were of the same weight. So my my question to you is, did you breed them at different weights then as their first farrowing, as their first gilt? Or did you wait until those gilts essentially grew to the appropriate weight and then you bred them to match their counterparts? Yeah, no, we did everything based on time. 
Okay. Um, and so, you know, these gilts would have been, essentially, we tried to mimic the flow of a female into a sow farm coming in, uh, getting flush fed, um, and going through, you know, the whole H&S cycle and then being bred. Um, we tried to mimic that uh, just based on timing. Um, and so they were of the same age uh, at the time of breeding. That's very good. So that'll be interesting to see what your your larger group will will tell, and hopefully that does give us some additional information. Um, so that can you give us maybe an idea of of how much difference in weight those those two groups might have been at the same age? Yeah, we we were only able to capture um, about uh, somewhere between seven and nine kilograms on average. So. You know, we're, we're talking 15 pounds or so, uh, 15 to 18 pounds difference um, on on kind of the average. But on the extremes, there were some, uh, you know, that were, were definitely a little more outside of that. On, on the group that we did 3,300, when we weighed them off test at about, um, or at least out of the research barn and, and on their way to an isolation barn in order to be introduced to the Dalhart population... When we weighed individually those 3,300, you know, the average doesn't sound like it changed much. But when we look at the distribution of those gilts, what we did was those high, extremely fast-growing gilts, we essentially pulled them down and made the distribution tighter. So it wasn't that we really impacted the bottom end of the gilts. Um, It was more so that we really kind of capped those really fast growing, um, somewhat earlier maturing gilts, we kind of held them back a little bit. So you, you see more of a peak uh, than a hill uh, when we're looking at the control compared to this lower energy. Um, and in that instance, the control would have been a, a corn soy based ration in terms of energy level to, to, to relate to what others may be doing. Yeah, that's really intriguing. So, Kyle, one of the other things that I'm really curious about here is um, some of maybe the other work you've been doing on parity and um, conversations around that. So you had mentioned to me a little bit earlier that you've been kind of tracking those parities and looking at some differences. And maybe you're not able to share that. Maybe that's still in in research mode. But if you're willing, I think that'd be interesting to talk about. Yeah. So I'd ask you about parity in terms of kind of what we're seeing for sow mortality in some of these parodies. Yeah. You know, when we when we look at the analysis, certainly um, you know, these P1, P2s are dying at a higher rate or being removed from the herd at a higher rate um than than what they had. And I think that makes a little bit of sense, right? Because um the sows who have the ability to make it to P4, 5, 6 and 7 you know, get through that initial parity um, a lot sooner. Um, and and definitely it, it hones us in on what are we doing with the gilt and that immediate uh, time right after she farrows and into her start of her second gestation. Um, we are monitoring gilt weights probably as closely as we ever have. Um, PJ Corns is our sow director and, and he and I talk um, several times a day on, on a variety of topics. But one of the things that we focus on, and I would say probably 20 to 30% of the conversations that I have are all about sow condition. 
Um, and I am very fortunate to work with a, uh, a sow production manager who, who gets it. Um, and, and, and I think I'm pretty lucky, um, because, you know, we give a protocol of, you know, we want to feed four pounds and this is enough energy to maintain her in condition. And, you know, we don't, we, we may debate, um, about that initially, but then we just really debate about the execution. And yes, we know sows are dying. Yes, we know that lameness can be a problem. Yes, we know prolapses are happening. But those things aren't in our immediate control today. What can we control today? We can control guilt weights going in. We can monitor their growth. So when I'm on sow farms that have a GDU, we'll weigh, you know, maybe 10 pigs kind of in every group. And we'll look at a lifetime average daily gain trying to, you know, get somewhere between 650 and 700 grams per day of lifetime gain. And then we'll look at that and show that to the farm. That, hey, the gilts are on track uh, or, hey, the gilts are not on track. Is there a, a production or a management or a nutritional intervention that needs to go on? But it's really focusing on those controllables and those initial parities gives us that longer longevity um, later on. Um, and keeping those sows in condition as well. Sometimes you've got to push some feed and cer certainly, you know, when you're on farm today, um, you know, a lot of conversations that you have with folks is the price of feed, right? But we also know when we get a sow too heavy or get her too thin, there's a huge cost with that. So, you know, we try to not let, um, you know, we don't want to skip over the dollars to save a few pennies. We want to make sure we're using that feed appropriately, but we're not going to get um, you know, into these 30 plus PSYs, unless we have her in that condition. And we know throughput drives, drives a lot of costs down. And, um, sometimes, you know, you have to put a, a few more inputs to get that. So that's how we're kind of focusing on things. You know, the, again, those initial parodies, um, are, are so, uh, important to her life. Um, and the goal is to get that guilt at the right weight in the farm, get her in the right condition and keep her there. Um, I was at a farm today, a nucleus farm, actually, who historically had had a challenge with um, heavy gilts. Um, it was not uncommon to have 350 plus gilts. And it was just uh, an artifact of, of those gilts just did really, really well in that GDU. Um, but over time, you know, with, with some management and the team there, they got focused on it. They got the condition off those gilts over time in the appropriate way. Um, and looking at sow condition and looking at how those sows come out of farrowing, they were just beautiful. And, um, you know, you look at the sow mortality on that farm and it's definitely one of the lower ones. So there's some things that we can control. And I think folks certainly listening to this is we've got a lot to learn on sow mortality, but there's so much that we already know that can really help drive this guilt weights and sow condition are a big part of that. Uh -huh. You mentioned that you're routinely checking the gilt developers and making sure that your gilts are growing at a set level per day. So I have 650 to 700 grams in my notes. Um, are you making any selections based off that? Are you saying, well, if they're under this level, we won't keep them? Or is it more, no, this is just a visual. If at this age, they're at the bottom portion of the curve, they're just going to be cold from the herd. Yeah, you know, that's a world I would love to live in, <laughs> um, you know, with, with the recent, I shouldn't say recent, but with the, the uptick in PERS outbreaks, gilts that have four legs and, and have a, 
have a functional underline um, and a good reproductive track are a hot commodity. This is- and um, which I think um, plays into part of our problem. Our selection pressure has really had to be dialed down because we need all the gilts that we can get. Um, but I, if, if I could step out of my reality for a minute and, and live in a, in, in a different world, I think that we, we would. Um, and certainly, you know, those gilts that are faster growing are, are just going to be big at the time of breeding. Um, and if we're able to not utilize those, send those to a coal market, maybe with your coal sows, I think that'd be a definitely a great way to do that. Um, I don't know if you could ever be too guilt rich, if you will. We always need more guilt. Uh, but I think that that's a, that would be a great process. Now, could you financially afford that? And what, you know, if this population, if you only need to peel off the top three or 4% and that translated into half the sow mortality due to lameness, if, if we may, you know, kind of cowboy math seems like that'd probably be a pretty good investment um, because we're not continuing on to uh, have some of that mortality. But you also have to balance it with, I need to get a litter out of this expensive guilt that I've just raised to this point. You know, what is that, that, um, that break even, um, you know, the financials have to come back into this at, at some point. I would just like to mention though, too, that I think as an industry, I would challenge what a GDU or a guilt finisher, if you will, looks like today. Um, as many herd closures as we've had due to PERS, um, as many flow changes that we've had due to geography with PERS moving into that, has caused us to make some difficult decisions of what to do with her. Um, you know, it seems like some of these gilts, we've called them gypsies, because they've moved around to try to skirt these animal health challenges in efforts to, to do the right thing with them. Uh, but ultimately, they don't make a great guilt at the end. And, you know, should we be considering more a, a different type of feeding system in these gilt barns? Uh, so that way, if we do have to have a herd closure that causes us to do an offsite breeding project with these gilts, you know, feeding ad libitum gilts is just it's just a recipe for a challenge down the road. And, you know, should we be putting more feed boxes, even just feed drops like a gestation feed drop in finishers with smaller stanchions to be able to control growth? A lot of the work in Brazil, um, out of Bordelosa's group and a few others has looked at this controlled feeding of gilts. And um, I think there's something there. If nonetheless, to be able to do an offsite breeding project so these gilts um, can really have a normal life cycle, if you will, um, I think it would be a great place. We certainly don't have any, um, but I would love it if uh, if someone would show us how that should be done. I think that's a great suggestion, Kyle. Well, one of the last things I want to talk about here is it would be remiss if I didn't bring up the word prolapse if we're talking about livability. And so... <laughs> Um, any observations that that you've noticed in your system that you'd like to share with others in, in terms of prolapses and how that relates to your sow retention? Yes. Um, prolapses is, is the other thing um, that we talk about a lot. And prolapses are just such a challenge to really clearly identify some root causes. And um, PIC has done some work. I know um, the Iowa State group has done as much work as anybody on this. And um, we have put uh, a task force together within our system to really focus in on this and look at some things. 
Um, so a couple of things that I would like to mention here, Dr. Greiner, is the the first one was mycotoxins come to mind and nearly 75 to 80% of the nutritional discussions, mycotoxins come into play. Um, and I we were asked to say, hey, you guys do all this mycotoxin testing and all of these feed mills. You have this vast database. Uh, have you ever looked at it? And a production manager um, by the name of Carl Bray, he's one of our, our production managers, he challenged me to say, have you ever done anything with that data? Have you laid it over uh, any type of this stuff? And and um, I felt a little uh, remiss that, no, actually, I haven't. That's a, that's a great idea. So we laid all of our mycotoxin data over the last two years of our deaths due to prolapse. And we could not find a correlation. Oddly enough, and I'm not saying that this is um, how, how it is, but actually when we had a little higher zeralinone, the prolapse rate went down. So I'm not campaigning that everyone just needs to feed crummy corn, but out of the 3,000 plus analysis and over, you know, 100,000 records over two years of, of sows, um, you know, it was clear to us that we that conversation probably can die down quite a bit. There are certainly times when we think that that could be a, a player, but when Dr. Madsen and I have looked in the literature, um, you know, we think of zeralinone because of an estrogen uh, type of uh, uh, molecule that can be associated with zeralinone. In some human studies, um, higher levels of estrogen has actually been associated with lower levels uh, of prolapses um, on the human side of things. Estrogen is pretty important from a vesicular integrity standpoint, uh, repairing the reproductive tissue. So I don't think that um, we should be extremely scared of estrogen and some of their compounds. We have partnered with Colorado State University, and I don't want to uh, do a spoiler alert on, on a project, but we have partnered with Colorado State University to, to look at some estrogen in our feed uh, to just start to rule some of these things out so that the conversations can start to take a, a little bit of a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lastly, um, a graduate student by the name of Jared Harshman, who is at uh, Oklahoma State University, is doing a project looking at serum mineral levels and things like collagen and relaxin and estrogen. And um, he's going to be on your guys' podcast here, uh, I think, sometime in the next week or two. I don't want to steal his thunder. No, wonderful. We'll keep our eyes out for that one for sure. Well, Kyle, it, our time is really kind of wrapping up, and I know we could probably talk a lot longer on, on some of your experiences and what you're doing to work on sow survivability. Um, but we do need to wrap it up. And so what I would ask for you to do is maybe share a couple of key tips or or suggestions that you would like our audience to take away from our conversation today. Yeah, I think, you know, if I could summarize that up, there's a lot of smart people working on this and it's going to take an entire industry. Uh, but don't forget about the controllables. Um, giving the guilts a good place to live, fresh feet, clean water, good environment, um, doesn't take anything too fancy. And make sure we just take care of her the best we can. Uh, watch the feed budgets. Um, watch the the barn. Watch the stocking density. We know the things that have an impact. We can control those. Um, let's don't forget about them. Very good. It's time for our famous three. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Swine Management to the Next Level. 
cloudfarms.com. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to Genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Well, Kyle, one of the things we like to do with our guests as we wrap up is ask you a couple of questions. The first one we'd like to ask you is, do you have a spine resource that you'd recommend to the audience? Yeah, for me, um, I go to, uh, you know, definitely the NRC is is a huge um, part of what we what we rely on. Uh, but I also like the old blue Lee Southern book, uh, the Swine Nutrition uh, book that was published several years back. I still think it has a lot of the fundamentals. Um, and sometimes we get so wrapped up in in what's new and interesting uh, that sometimes I just like to go back and read a chapter just to refresh myself to make sure that I'm on the straight and narrow. And I think sometimes it's okay to do that. Um, so those are kind of my two main uh, resources uh, to go to. There's definitely always the K-State Swine Days. There's a ton of uh, information in there that uh, I don't know what I'd do without. Yeah, absolutely. All very good swine resource books. How about something that's not related to pigs? Is there anything that you're reading currently or have read that you might recommend to the group? Yeah, you know, um, you had a gentleman at your Iowa State Swine Days named Peter Zion who <laughs> came and spoke. And um, I think he's a great uh, teacher and he has a unique uh, perspective on the world. His first book, The Accidental Superpower, and is a great one. And I think if you want to understand kind of how the world works and how we actually fit into it, I would recommend that to anybody. And definitely with the, you know, the, the most recent news around the demographic changes in countries like China uh, and Japan and even in Russia um, and understanding how that's going to impact global trade, which, you know, the pork industry relies extremely heavily on trade for both ingredients and because our product goes so many places across the world. I think that's a great one that everybody should read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. So my last question for you is if you can think of somebody in your life that you have defined as successful and you can define that however you'd like, what's a trait that they have possessed that you think has allowed them to be successful? Yeah. So um, there, there's an individual in my life who um, he, he is definitely, I, I call him dad, um, but um, my uncle Jim is uh, a professor at Baylor College of Medicine and he's the smartest guy I know. And what I've learned from him is keep searching and keep digging. He's extremely thorough. Um, his patients will say, you know, he took three gallons of blood for me today. Um, and, and what, you know, what is he going to look for? He's just extremely thorough. Um, even when it takes time, uh, he does not let the speed of the decision outweigh getting it right. And I think in a in a world, certainly in a production system where things really click along really fast. Um, I think my dad does a great job of getting that right. And I just look up to him. He takes the time to learn. And um, I'm very thankful to have his mentorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful trait to have for sure. Well, Kyle, I want to thank you again for your time today. 
It's been a great conversation around cell longevity. Uh, for our audience, again, this is Dr. Kyle Koval, who's the Director of Nutrition Services for JBS. Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.